Welcome to the Programmatic Digest, a podcast dedicated to review industry headlines and trends in the programmatic and digital ad tech world. I'm Ellen Parker, your host and Chief Programmatic Sensei of Ellen Parker Consulting, where we offer customizable training in programmatic media. This podcast has been sponsored by WorkReduce. If you want to reimagine how to work in advertising, check them out at workreduce.com forward slash careers. Welcome to the Programmatic Digest podcast. Everybody joining us. Josh, how are you doing today? I'm well, Alan. How are you? I have you today to talk about first party data and more. But before we get into today's conversation, I'd love to understand who you are, what you do, and how you got to becoming the CEO of Response Media. <laughs> Boy, that's a lot of questions. So, <laughs> Josh Perlstein, um, mm-hmm. I'm CEO of Response Media and um, a little bit about what we do as a company and mm-hmm. what I do. Um, we specialize in data-led marketing, right? So if you think about it, there's lots of different ways that data can make marketing work better. And that's our core competency. And the company's been around for 42 years. So if you do the math, that's before digital. Our core competency has always been the same. leveraging data to make marketing work better. So prior to the internet, that was using data-led media channels that were available back then, which is primarily direct mail. There was some direct television that could be leveraged with data, but generally direct mail. And direct mail had a lot of similarities to digital today in that it was measurable and accountable and, um, and very, very targeted. So our core competency today is very similar to what it's always been, even pre-internet marketing, which is um, using measurable and accountable media types to drive better results for our clients and their marketing campaigns and marketing platforms. My job day-to-day is to help with strategy, um, working with our clients firsthand. um, And a lot of the work that we do in response media ends up materializing in a couple of different channels, one being paid media. So driving better targeted, better performing media campaigns. Two, in content and planning and strategy. So how do we communicate the right messages to the right folks at the right time in the right channel? And last but not least, using direct messaging. So we have a, a particular passion and love for uh, channels like email or text messaging that we find um outperform general media outreach because they're very direct and they can be very, very personal. So oftentimes I'll describe us as personalized marketing at a very deep level. Um, And I've been doing this for 26 years. This is not something, a company I started. It's a company I joined um, because I saw an opportunity to leverage our DNA, our skill set to make it work for what was a new channel at the time, digital. Yeah, that's dope. That's dope. So if you had to explain, I would say that your company, what you're offering to your clients right now uh, is very data-driven. So I would say it's very data-driven marketing. It's very data-driven advertising. So if you had to explain data-driven marketing or data-driven advertising to a 10-year-old, my 10-year-old niece, how would you explain it to her? Now let's take a quick break to hear more about our sponsors. 
our sponsor, WorkReduce is the secret weapon used by the market's top agencies and brands. Their specialist talent and media services help brands and agencies grow and scale faster. One of the fastest growing services offered by WorkReduce is their service desk. It provides flexible, on-demand media buying, ad operation, and analytics support. Many of the world's biggest brands and agencies use WorkReduce in time zone service desk as an extension of their in-house media team. With an easily deployable operation playbook, process automation, and a high-quality reputation, their service desks will provide the expertise and precision to take your digital operation to the next level in 2022. Covering ad trafficking, campaign setup, QA, optimization, and campaign analytics, your internal resource focus on the activities that count the most while WorkReduce Service Desk takes care of the rest. Check out WorkReduce.com for more information on their ad operations service desk and tell them Ellen sent you. Now back to the episode. Boy, that's a terrific way you phrased that question. <laughs> um, I'm also someone who likes to oversimplify. <laughs> I like that to too. To make something clear. It is a, it is a great way yeah. to get at the heart of any matter. Yeah. And um, I would explain data-driven. I like to say data-led, not necessarily data-driven. Data-led meaning the data leads us in the right direction. Uh, it doesn't just drive our marketing. I like to explain it like this. Okay. If you understand what someone wants, what someone needs, or what someone desires, how do you best give it to them? How do I make, as a marketer, something relevant or meaningful to you? I think that's the best application or simple definition of data-led or data-driven, meaning I'm understanding exactly what you tell me, the signals you're giving me by your behavior, and I'm combining those to turn something back to you that has meaning and value. Gotcha. I'll, I'll I'll add to that, Ellen, getting out of the 10-year-old definition. Mm-hmm. Um, I think our minds are cluttered today. There's too many things that we're seeing, that we hear. We've got too many devices. We're getting messages, not just advertising, but messages from every direction. And most of it goes in one ear and out the other. So in order to break through the clutter, or consistently stick out. It needs to be relevant, valuable, meaningful. And ultimately that leads to what we try and build here at Response Media is relationships. Think about personal relationships, right? Like you have personal relationships, family, friends, et cetera. You are connected to them. I'll take family out of it. You have to be connected to them in some way, shape or form. But when you think about your relationship outside of family, uh-huh. it has to have some value to you. Okay. And that value could be, this person makes me feel good. This person loves me. This person makes me laugh. This person teaches me things. Digital relationships between brands and consumers, and I say consumers loosely, could be in a B2B sense to customers, but I'll just use the word consumers because they're consuming a product or, or service. Okay. Um, 
it has to have value. And we have to understand what that value is by listening to that consumer or customer. Uh, that's fascinating. And I think that's a great segue into today's conversation on first-party data and cookie deprecation. So um, there's been a lot of updates on this particular subject. Um, is there a, a most recent updates that you heard? And the reason why I'm asking is because um, you're very focused on data. It's very data-led. And so what are some of the updates or announcements that just happened that made you think, hmm, I got to do this for my clients right now? Hmm. And what was you know, it? And yeah. this is very first-party data. Um, well, this is a question around first-party data. Well, the answer leads to first-party data, but the latest trends that we're seeing in digital marketing mm -hmm that are relevant to a data conversation are limitations over the last few years and the next few years to come, allegedly, um, um, will continue to increase. It will be harder and harder to recognize someone, to target them appropriately. Okay. So as an example, Apple in their iOS, or even on apps, used to allow us to use other data, data we brought in from other places to recognize that, for example, Ellen, you have a dog, right? Yep. Um, that's what I would call third-party data. Um, uh, Google has been threatening for the last number of years that they're also going to not allow us to use third-party data or drop a cookie on your browser to be able to recognize you, recognize you as someone who visited our site in the past, yep. not be able to enhance data to understand something that we didn't have on you firsthand, like you own a dog. Um, so the latest and greatest from Google is a little different than Apple. Apple said, and, and keep in mind, people from a browsing perspective, from an email reading perspective, this isn't just about paid media. This is about email as well um, and app activity. Yeah. Um, Apple has said, we're not going to allow you to, um, to do things that will allow uh, an advertiser to recognize someone by dropping a cookie on a device. Okay. Google's taken a slightly softer stance to that. And I think it's because Google is a primarily advertising-based company where Apple's a lot of different things. Yeah. Google has said now, their latest and greatest, in 2023, at some point, they're going to stop allowing us to drop cookies on Chrome browsers. And that also is for Android devices. So a whole lot of advertisers today, well, not just advertisers, marketers in general, Yeah. Um, tend to retarget advertising, focus advertising to make it more, more relevant based on those cookies that they're dropping on browsers, based on third-party data they're bringing into a Google ecosystem to, to enhance their advertising targeting. Um, that presumably will be gone next year. And I say 2023 is the latest and greatest because they said that about 2022 initially, and then they backed off a little bit. And I think it's because advertisers weren't ready yeah, I also believe advertisers aren't ready yet today for this major change in how they target their media. 
You better tell him. Mm. So, tell him. so um, our philosophy for many years has been about collecting your own data. Mm. Collecting your own data has always been a best practice because it saves advertisers money on, I don't have to buy this targeting data. I don't have to rely on Facebook or Google or Twitter to tell me who this person is. If this person has presumably given us their email address, done things on our digital owned properties or websites, then we have the ability to own that data and use it however we want. It's privacy safe. And privacy safe, by the way, across any market. This goes across the EU with their more stringent data privacy yeah. um, concerns, Canada with their more stringent privacy regulations. Um, if you own the data, and in some markets, by the way, if we talk, I don't want to go global here as a yeah. subject matter because that could be an hour-long discussion in and of itself. <laughs> but but um, assuming that you have consent, in some markets that's required. Um, but if you own the data, and I'll define that wi widely as first-party data, if yeah. you own the data, you have the ability to use it. And that will save you money in advertising. That will allow you to better target your messaging across channels in media, in search, in your email and one-to-one -one interactions, on your website. First-party data is the key to unlocking the identities of your customers, prospects, your audiences mm -hmm. um, across all of channel, all of the digital channels. And that includes digital television and digital audio as well. I think it's, um, if I had to recap just the, the number of gems you just said, first party data is very important. I'm going to say optimistically that the industry is now becoming more aware of how important first party data is and how underrated it used to be. And I think that it makes a lot of sense what you're saying. Like you have to invest in being able to measure your first party data and utilize it, mold it in the sense that you can use for yourself or for your clients if you're an agency or a publisher, let's say, um, and, and maximize on it, right? Because now you're becoming more targeted and more relevant on how you're communicating with those people that are kind of interested. If they've landed on your website, they're already kind of interested. If they're already signed up to your newsletter, if you you mentioned email marketing, for instance, if you were consent, like if you were given with consent their information, then they're more likely kind of interested. So why not maximize this information, this data to make certain decisions for future promotions, for future service you're trying to push for, for whatever you're trying to do, right? Um, so let's, let me ask you, Josh, because I think, I think you drop a lot of gems and I don't think they heard you correctly. So let me ask this. Let's give them an example. Let's give our listeners or YouTube viewers, viewers an example of when you've worked with a client that maybe did not know how to best use their first party data. And that doesn't mean that they didn't want to, it's just they had first party data, but did not know exactly how to best utilize it for their current campaigns, their current um, media uh, marketing efforts. So give us an example of when you had a particular client that had healthy amount of first party data, whether it's CRM based or whether it's website traffic, and how did you help them really understand, here's what we're going to do and what were the results? Sure. Um, gosh, I'm trying to think of what is the best example to use. Um, I also want to unpack 
a little bit of what you said in your question. You pointed to a couple of different things that are important considerations when you're planning out your first party data strategy. And again, I'll remind the listeners of this podcast, I'm using first party data um, as a wide definition for both behavioral data you collect and declared data, data that someone is giving you through registration or quizzes or polls or whatnot. Um, some people call that first party data and the declared stuff is zero party data. I'm going to simplify by talking about it all as first party data because it's data you own as first party. Okay. Gotcha. Okay. Um, we tend to work with a lot of consumer packaged goods brands here. CPG okay. is a category we have a lot of um, a lot of experience and a lot of passion for. And um, there are typically a couple of areas of focus that we hone in on together um, to make first party data work to its maximum value. And we typically start with mapping out what data can we collect and matching those to what's most important. And lastly, how can we use that, right? So we can collect lots of data through behaviors on a website, through behaviors in email. Um, but understanding what's really important is perhaps a key question that marketers should ask themselves that, that I think is under asked, not asked enough. Um, in addition, the how do we use it question. Where do we store this data? How do we combine data from different channels? So we've got all this behavioral data from our website. We also got behavioral data from email. So thinking about using that across channels, and I'll just use those two channels as a simple, simple example, um, it wields a lot more power than just saying, hey, we're going to retarget based on a product that you viewed on my website. There's a lot of really valuable data in email that can better inform media and likewise media behavioral data that can inform better email stuff. Mm -hmm. Okay, so an example. Um, we work with a uh, food and beverage manufacturing company, a large global one. They make lots of ready-to-eat meals and ingredients, ingredients and condiments like ketchup and okay. uh, whipped cream and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, they have a recipe program. We didn't create their recipe program, although we do a lot of email content and strategy, but this is one we inherited from our client. Our challenge is how do we grow that portfolio program of recipes, recipes that use their ingredients, some recipes that don't use their ingredients, but we want to deliver value. Um, the other challenge is how do we do it at scale? And that's a key point I want to make. These are large brands you'll see in every grocery store around the country. If we didn't find this data or grow these consumer subscriber bases into the millions, it wouldn't move the needle for them on sale. Uh, this is often a, a um, I think, a fallacy that first-party data can't be collected at scale. But if you focus and invest, we've grown email programs first-party registration-based programs into the tens of millions for brands, truly tens of millions of hand raisers giving data about themselves, uh, giving signals on our websites and in our emails about what, what they're doing and what they're interested in. 
Um, mm -hmm. It is possible as long as you're focused and you invest in that area. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I'm going to take the next 30 seconds to let you know about the Reach Frequency, which is a course you've has asked me for, okay? And I've spent a lot of time crafting every single lesson just for you. Why should you even consider? And then I'm already pretty aware of what's going on for my advertising. I love your podcast, Tank. This is where I'm here. Cool, great. But you may know somebody that really wants to learn about programmatic advertising and don't know where to start, right? Most likely you've received training via your current job or via a previous job, right? You work for an agency, you work for a partner or a vendor in the industry, and they provided uh, the, the training, right? Is that how you got here? Well, did you know that that's the, actually the only way to get training nowadays? Like if for any one of our friends in the digital marketing world, it's really hard for us to, for them to really learn anything if they don't know who, where, and, and, and really what to look for. So the Reach and Frequency course is geared for those people. It's going to take you from zero to 100, from fundamentals to how to run a successful programmatic media campaign, how to run a successful department if you wish to be a leader or lead a department in programmatic advertising. The Reach and Frequency course is for you. Okay, we talk about we talk about anything from fundamentals. We talk about anything from who are the key players in the industry. But the biggest thing is that I give you my recommendation, my feedback, my guides. I was a trader. I was a buyer for few for eight plus years, right? And I led teams. I led teams of buyers. So I'm really, really, really good when it comes to running a programmatic advertising strategy, implementing, executing, optimizing, and reporting on, and then selling some more. I'm really good at that. So yeah, you can probably get most of this training out there. Great. Don't only stop at with my course. Continue training because that's 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 what it's all about, right? But what you won't get anywhere else and you'll get with me is all of that experience I've been able to gather, you've been able to implement. Like this is an interactive course for you to learn anything you should know about programmatic advertising, whether you're already working in it or you're trying to work in the industry. So check out the Reach and Frequency course brought to you by me, your very own programmatic coach. I'm very grateful for this experience that I've gone through the last two years and I'm here to teach you everything that I know. Check out reachandfrequency.live, reachandfrequency.live, and now back to the episode. So the example I'll share is we're able to grow the grow their recipe program to over two and a half million consumers per year, new consumers per year. Okay, and again, this is a broad appeal program. It's for people right. who like to cook at home. Uh, it's for busy working moms who want easy recipes, that kind of thing. Um, and we were able to take preferences they gave us through our registration process, right? So when we took over the program, it was, give us your email address, you're in. And we said, no, we're not going to put up a big wall or barrier if we collect other data that's most important, like what kind of recipes do you like the most? How many nights a week are you cooking at home? Um, How many children do you have? What is your zip code, right? So these were important data points because we could better target our email towards those people based on, I'm interested in dishes with meat in it, dishes with poultry in it vegan dishes, vegetarian dishes, et cetera. So we started to understand a little more 
through our registration process about what kind of recipes they really were interested in. And we saw open read and print rates go up for those recipes. Gotcha. Number one, go ahead. You went ahead and did almost like, I don't like the word testing, but you really assessed how um, those people were behaving with the brand by asking simple questions, giving them the choice, and then being consistent with how you communicated with them. It gave us an opportunity to make our communications with those consumers Mm. more relevant because Mm -hmm. we're giving them recipes that they said they wanted instead of giving everybody the same thing. Number one. Number two, we're able to give them items going on sale or regional events because now we're capturing zip codes, right? Um, We were able to give them recipe uh, defaults about number of servings based on the size of their household because we had that data. And and Mm. an often misunderstood thing is I don't want to make my registration process too long because people aren't going to finish it. The truth is there is no magic number of questions to ask when somebody signs up for a program or gives their declared data to a brand. Um, It's about how long they think it's going to take them. So it's perceived time. There isn't like, hey, ask just email and you're going to get a higher completion rate than asking two other simple questions. so it leads me to another trend in the in the area of data collection, which is richer experiences and registration process, not just like give me something that'll take me forever to type in on my phone. It's give them visuals like how many people in your household? One to two, three to six. Um, almost like images I can easily tap in my phone. Yeah, it makes yeah. it a much more enjoyable and easier registration process. Gotcha. Um, when they were when they when they were just collecting email address on their registration page, I'm going to make this number up. But let's say they had roughly a 50% completion rate. Somebody mm-hmm. navigated there to join the program. Um, when we added some questions, it only dropped maybe a couple of percentage points. Okay. So the net gain was great. And and I'll add one more thing about the value of first party data. Um, we didn't just use it to better target email and then started to better engage those consumers to build relationships, but we used that first party data as well to build more precise lookalike models mm-hmm. in media. So the media to drive both product purchase and media to get new people to join the program um, started to perform better when we started to collect more data, declared data. And for those who we didn't collect the killer data on, like let's say the million or so folks that were already in the program, mm-hmm. we use behavioral data. Mm-hmm. What recipes did they click on the most? Let's start focusing on putting custom emails together in those buckets. Let's start focusing retargeted media at those folks who showed an interest in, let's say, dairy-based desserts, right? Well, we should be pushing our whipped cream product to those people wow. um, more often than the you know, the, the, the microwave meals that they sold. Um, we also use the first party data to help us validate how well this stuff's working. So in the past, this is a weird example that's specific to CPG. Uh-huh. They had worked with like a Nielsen or an IRI to be able to match, hey, are people who I'm communicating this way to buying more product than they had in the past? Um, we were able to take that 
um, the new data we are collecting, the scaled program, and ask them if their buying habits change so we can get quicker, faster, and more accurate reads right, okay. on um, how people's buying habits have changed. So we use first-party data to enhance our measurement as well, which I think is really that, cool. I think that's beyond cool, and it's a great way to end the segment. Before we move into the closing segments, though, I am a big believer in success is all about how you implement the knowledge you acquired. So what are three things we can challenge our listeners and YouTube viewers to do today or tomorrow to take their first party data usage or first party data to the next level? What are three things like what are those three million dollar? Yo, if you do this, you will start seeing these results. That's what I love about you, Ellen. Actionable, <laughs> yeah. easy strategies. I'm with you on that. Mm -hmm. um, so three things. Mm -hmm. If you walk away from this podcast, yep. and um, the first thing you should do is think about how do I begin my first party data strategy if you don't already have that in place? So think about within that, I'll call this one A, B, and C. Um, <laughs> think about one, what data do I have today? Okay. What data is most important? Okay. And what else do I need to collect? Gotcha. Okay. Okay. Then, number two, think about how do I action on that? So, if I need to collect more data, a couple things to think about. One or two B, two A mm -hmm. is think about. How do I collect that information? Do I ask uh, my visitors, users, consumers, customers those questions? Can I pick that up based on their behavior, like what they're browsing, what content they're reading? And three, how do I manage that data? Do I have some sort of data warehouse where I can put that there? Do I have the right team to make sense of it, whether it's data analysts or database administrators. Yeah. Um, and um, an easier solution for a lot of marketers, assuming they have the budget today, is um, customer data platforms, CDPs yep. or DMPs. Um, both of those platform types can allow you easy storage of data and easy connection to media sources, the email and marketing yeah, information yeah. platforms. Um, so the third element is how do I do this at scale, right? So if I am now collecting meaningful data, using it and testing and learning to see if using it provides any lift, for example, more relevant recipes provided higher open and, right. and, and engagement rates, higher buy rates through the measurement side. Um, how do I scale this up? And we often encourage our clients, we do this as an exercise with our clients. Let's go through multiple options. If we wanted to really blow out first-party data collection at scale, what are our investment levels and options? You know, if we invest a million dollars in first-party data growth, what does that really mean in terms of how many new consumers, how many new data points? And what does that mean for our business? Um, so think about the third element is, how do I scale this? And uh, measure and continue to validate, test and learns as I go. That's dope. So understand where to start. And that's asking this, those three questions that you said, 
What kind of data am I collecting? What can I do more? How am I using this data? The second element is definitely invest in technology that can automate and maybe translate some of this data for you. And then technology the third, or people. Or oh, people. the people. I like that. The people too. Both. And then third, third element is um test, continue testing those new things. Like, you know, test the strategy, expand on the strategy, become more relevant, make those mini investment in terms of like. If we're doing this extra step and connecting with this audience, can we also use this to do something else? So, um, and and trust trust the data that's coming in because I remember running few actually few strategies where we would see data coming in and those conversions or the results were just kind of weird. Like, what people were actually doing this? Trust the data if if it's measured yeah. and and set up to measure correctly. You should trust the data just because your intuition or personally you don't see it doesn't mean that that data cannot be used. Okay. And I'll end with this last example. I remember running a campaign 2018 or 2017, I don't know. And it was a um, university. And we discovered that most application, like the university application, was completing on mobile between the time, it was like an overnight time, it was later time. And so when we layered the demo, it was a younger, a younger crowd, 18 to 24, sure. I believe. And so we were like, okay, that makes sense. But <laughs> how are you completing full university college application on your phone at night? I like couldn't really? Imagine. I but couldn't imagine, what? but that's also because I'm older. Yeah. You're right. That, <laughs> but that generation does most of their work on their phone and there's no phone. problem filling out a, a 15 page, a 15 minute application. Right. And, but that, and that was already in 2017. Of course, behaviors have shifted and we know that the younger crowds are on mobile a little bit more than on desktop. Sure. But it was very interesting to, to trust that data. And what we did was just almost pull out a mobile strategy and had even like as, as simple as like creative specific to, to the mobile uh, efforts or um, like a different campaign, like a budget allocated just for that and actually a, it increased our conversion by X amount of. So it did work. So yeah. even if to you in the moment you're looking at your data and you see that this is kind of weird, what is happening? Continue doing your research, continue looking into it, but don't be afraid to take a little risk and test this weird thing coming in because it. it might work. Okay, Keep most of the time it does. I'm with yeah. you. Keep testing and validating. And, exactly. And I couldn't agree with you more. Trust the data. Um, data doesn't lie. <laughs> I agree. I agree. Um, all right. So let's move into our closing segments where I like to ask fun, fun questions. Um, I'm a big book reader. I'm a big bookworm. So I'd love to hear you, the latest uh, Audible you've listened to or the latest thing you read and what was it? Oh, gosh. Um, <laughs> Great question. You know, I go back to old classics and I reread them. Oh, nice. So um, Jim Collins, Good to Great, about companies finding focus. It's an old favorite of mine. And I just actually reread it to refocus. We're doing some strategic planning in my company and refocus us on how do we continue to get better at what we're already best at? How do we focus there? It's something I call the hedgehog concept, which is continue driving at what's your best at. Because I will say, as a digital agency, there's a tendency. And that tendency is, client wants this, let's do it. We can help there. We have a, 
we need to be honest with ourselves and our clients is somewhat uh, based on our mantra. Um, let's focus and be transparent about what we're really best at and what we're just okay at, right? But let's focus on what we're best at. Um, so that book talks about that a whole lot. It is an older one, meaning if you haven't read it, maybe this is a, a, a retro suggestion. <laughs> totally worth it. Uh -huh. Amazing clarity that I get out love of that book. Every time I read it, I've probably read it four times. Oh my gosh, love it. Okay, then we're going to look at it. It's Jim Collins, The Hedgehog Concept. I'll have no, it in good to great. Good to great is, is the name of the book. Hedgehog oh, Concept good to great. is one of the chapters. Yep. Uh, oh, you know what? Yes, that's The Hedgehog Concept. So good to great. Uh, good to great. Why some companies make the leap and others don't by um, Jim Collins. I mean, yep. Jim Collins. Oh, yeah, Jim Collins. But it was his finger for a second. Okay, great. Um, what are what is one fun fact you want to share with us? It doesn't have to be uh, professional. It can be personal. What is one fun fact like, hmm, maybe nobody knew? So I'll share two. Mm, okay. And one is, one is personal. One is, um, this is not what I really want to do for a living. Hmm. I don't know if that's, that's not terribly uncommon. No, um, not at all. My dream job mm -hmm. would be making cheese. Oh my gosh. Okay. No joke. Not only is cheese one of my favorite foods, but it <laughs> combines a lot of, well, a lot of the same of what I like about this job, about this business, which is some science, right? Cheese, we're talking about chemistry, trial and error, um, and a bit of art, right? The other fun fact I'll share, I was, a, I was a film major in college, radio, television, film, at University of Texas. Okay. And um, this was not an industry I thought I was going into. I wanted to be a writer, television writer. It was, you know, something I, I always was dead set on. And um, a few short months in that industry talked me out of that. But I leveraged the same storytelling skills to do what we do today. We all think in stories, right? So yep. if we want to be relevant and valuable to others, we need to think about how to weave those stories transparently and honestly weave those stories. And um, being a television film major really helped me quite a bit in the, in the creative marketing industry. That's really dope. Uh, what is your favorite cheese? <laughs> With that. Oh, great question. Um, I am... Um, Gosh, it depends on the day. I would say if I'm snacking or doing cheese and crackers, there's um, a brand of Gouda that I think is just a delightful taste called Pirano. Um, I actually, little pitch, I have a client, Sartori Cheese, that we love. And they are they make some amazing infused aged cheeses like whiskey-infused cheese or port-infused cheese or Merlot-infused cheese that are really interesting and fascinating so my latest um my latest happy hour at my house i was experimenting with some of those and they are amazing that's funny the happy hour oh my gosh okay well definitely. And by the way by the way landing a cheese client lifelong dream it was <laughs> it was awesome oh my gosh yeah we'll definitely have their information in the description as well because now i, I want to try i can only do Sartori cheese so it's perfect it's perfect um all right so last question of the the episode um if you had to give yourself one advice, like your younger self, your freshman self starting, something that you wish you knew that you you know now, what would that be? Uh, again, as a bonus, I'll share two things. 
It's hard to focus. I love on it. That. I love it. I no, love it. Tita, surprising. <laughs> feel free to edit one out if you don't like it. Um, <laughs> no. So, um, one, mm-hmm. our industry needs more critical thinkers. I see too many people coming into yes, the industry doing what they're supposed to be doing. And that doesn't sound like a bad thing, but I always want our people, whether, and this isn't just employees at Response Media, but clients, suppliers, partners, always be asking why. Why am I doing this? What's the end goal? If you can connect those two pieces and you're always asking that even just to yourself and you're not 100% sure why, you need to dig into that. So critical thinking skills are so important. Perhaps the most important thing to deliver as a digital marketing person, in my opinion. Um, The other thing I'll mention is... um, Go above and beyond. I see too many folks, um, and I've been guilty of this myself, identifying a problem, but not really thinking through solutions. So whenever you encounter a problem, before you talk to coworkers, your team, your client, your manager, whatever it might be about it, think about potential solutions because it'll put you on the path to solving that problem um, much further along. That's dope. That's real. So, so understand your why. What is your why? And go above and beyond. Yep. Really, you know, go above yep. and beyond. Solutions, no, not problems. There is no better way to end this podcast. Is anyone, if anyone wants to reach out to you, Josh, how can they do that? Ah, uh, I, I would love it. Hit me up on LinkedIn. You can find me at Josh Pearlstein at LinkedIn. Okay. Um, and there aren't too many Josh Pearlsteins. <laughs> Great. Look for the old-looking guy with the beard. Um. <laughs> And then um, certainly you can go to our website as well, responsemedia.com. Find out more about us. You can you can hit us up there too. Sweet. All of your information will be in the show notes again, in the description, nice. even on the YouTube video. So thank you. Thank you so much for making the time. We appreciate you. Thank you for sharing your wisdom. And we look forward to seeing you very, very soon back on the podcast. Oh, thank you, Ellen. Really appreciate being on the, on the program. Great.